Washington overall is a sort of a sleazy, corrupt place, not necessarily the individual lawmakers. That was one of your takeaways. Did that inspire your book, Animal Town? Yes. And, and thank you for asking. That's absolutely it did. And, and what you see in my book, Animal Town, which again is available on Amazon or through the publisher, D'Angelo Publications, is that you have a prosperous capitalist society, much like our own, where Joe Biden, with his advanced age, is carries less weight in the Democratic Party than he would have in the past. And he's not the future of the Democratic Party. He's, he's the past. We've created an incentive system where money leads to elections. And in order to get money, you often have to compromise on your personal beliefs or your character or your, your, your sense of ethics. Mm. So I don't blame an individual congressperson for making those choices. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. A.D. Altman may be the very definition of a renaissance man. He has lots to say, as you just heard, after his career in Washington, D.C., and on Capitol Hill working for Democratic Senator Tim Johnson. A.D. Altman quit D.C. to travel the world and write his Animal Town, a book that reflects his warnings about the rise of political extremism. A.D. Altman grew up on a farm on the Great American Plains and today he teaches at a charter school where he is honing his opinions and weighing up his future. A.D. Altman is back by popular demand and he is my guest coming up. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Well, I hope you're all well, and I have a personal promo here. I am excited to announce I am speaking at the Library of the Chathams in New Jersey, Morris County, on Thursday, November the 11th at 214 Main Street, Chatham, New Jersey, from 7 to 8 p.m., I'll be speaking about the American Dream. Details on chathamlibrary.org. That's C-H-A-T-H-A-M, library.org. That's Library of the Chathams in New Jersey on Thursday, November the 11th at 7 p.m. So go to their website for more details, chathamlibrary.org. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is A.D. Altman, the former Capitol Hill staffer and now an author and a teacher at a charter school in America. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Welcome to my show. It's great to have you back. Yes, thanks, John. Happy to be here. Yeah, we had great reaction to the last time you appeared on the show. And a lot has happened in your life since then. Uh, you can tell us about your book, how it's doing. But you were back in Washington, D.C. this past summer. And you were shocked by what you saw. Can you just describe that to us? Yeah, sure, John. So uh, I moved away from D.C. in 20, 
2019 in, Ju in July of 2019. But since then, I've been back three or four times at least. And I maintain a lot of contacts there. So most recently, I was there in late August. And what you've seen really since COVID is <laughs> really a deluge of homeless encampments sort of taking over many of the public spaces in the city. A lot of the city parks have been sort of taken over by informal um, homeless or semi-homed -home camps. So one anecdote I can tell that sort of captures this is that you've got these high-rise, expensive, you know, condos that are selling for, you know, some of the highest values per square foot in, in the country. And just outside the doorstep or 100 feet away, you might have people defecating in public on the street or shooting up or, you know, publicly consuming drugs. So one of my friends was in one of these places and I, and they're talking about having a family and, and, and having children. And it's, I try to think to myself, like you, you pay these premium real estate prices upwards of a million dollars for, you know, 1200 square feet. And you walk outside your front door and you've maybe got your child with you and you can see these things going on just on your doorstep. So it's an amazing contrast and it's absolutely gotten worse in the last, you know, 18 to 24 months since I moved away. And what explains all of that? I mean, a lot of American cities are in disarray. Look at San Francisco, for example. New York yes. City has its own problems. Well, you know, I don't claim to have the one true answer on this, but certainly COVID was a factor in unemployment. But I also think you had a shift in mentality where, and I'll, I'll quote Thomas Sowell on this. I believe he's the theorist or an economist who came up with the notion of constrained worldviews versus an unconstrained worldview. And I think these cities where you have these serious homeless encampment problems is that's indicative of the unconstrained worldview, which really looks at these, the situation and says, well, if only we had a more just, fair and equitable society, there wouldn't be homeless people. And the problem is not with the homeless people. The problem is with our society for failing. And that's the only explanation that they're willing to admit. And that's an unconstrained view that we can change human nature and we can change our society to make it perfect if we just try hard enough and have the right system. And the constrained view says, well, look, human beings are distributed their attributes along a bell curve. And unfortunately, there, no matter how just and equitable and, and well-ordered your society is, you're just never going to have everyone fitting into the successful mold that you imagine. And you accept a certain inevitable proportion of people who will not <laughs> meet the standards that you'd like them to meet, yeah. uh, to put it you know, somewhat awkwardly. And and I think what you have is you have a policy that refuses to like place any of the responsibility for homelessness with the homeless. And I don't, again, I don't want to sound heartless because I'm fully aware that most of the homeless people in DC and elsewhere have mental illnesses. Yeah. And in the last 30, 40, actually no more than that, about two generations ago, we stopped funding mental hospitals and essentially used the prison system to deal with mental health. And mm -hmm. that's the real underlying issue here. But it's clear that you could, and they've tried this in places like San Francisco, they'll give hotel rooms and food and, and, and a full service uh, offered, offer, or offered to some of these homeless people. And many of them just refuse. I mean, and that's, some people just prefer in some circumstances that sort of unattached lifestyle. And again, I'm, I'm not talking about the majority here. I think the majority is mental, men, have mental health problems. Uh, but nevertheless, this unconstrained view is getting in the way of actually dealing with it in a, in a rational way, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, we all feel sorry for the homeless and should. It's just a humanitarian instinct. But there's problems in how we're dealing with the homeless problem in America. 
We all feel sorry for the homeless, as we should. It's just a deep, basic human instinct. We have to have this sense of charity uh, and help those less fortunate than us. I think the issue is how we deal with homelessness in America. It's just a systemic problem. Again, we've seen it in all these other cities. San Francisco is a total mess. Yeah, indeed. San Francisco, I've also heard problems on other West Coast cities like in Portland and in Seattle. Um, I can't speak for New York. I haven't been there recently. But well, again, like I said, I, I just go back to this unconstrained view. And it's and this is the same view that permeates a lot of aspects of our society now where it's, it's akin to a utopianism, this notion that the only problem is that we haven't quite figured out the right sort of ideology or, or religion or whatever the case is. And once we all agree on what that is, then the sort of will be ushered into this post-strife you know, world where everyone lives happily. But I, did, I reject that for a couple of reasons. First off, a utopia is, is not an achievable thing. And I think we, can, we're, we forget sometimes that we are part of the animal kingdom too. And I think, you know, I always try to remember that I'm not a human being. I'm, I'm a great ape at the same time, you know, and we don't ever see in the animal. A kingdom, great human ape. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. So, you know, you see the same sorts of uh, distributions of properties that are, that are, you know, beneficial to survival in the animal kingdom. Well, of course, you're going to see a distribution of capabilities in the human, in the human world, too. And a lot of people just really just can't stand the notion that some people are just unfortunately, like are dealt a better hand in life, not just yeah. through, you know, social and economic uh, means, but straight genetics. And, and that's an unfortunate reality that I think the unconstrained and utopian worldview just refuses to acknowledge. Well, that goes back to what we've been hearing a lot lately in the last few years, equity, fairness, income redistribution. And you hear that on the AOC side um, of the Democratic Party. Um, speaking of politics, you spent some of your time during your career on Capitol Hill as a busy staffer for Tim Johnson. That was a pretty eye-opening experience, which we spoke about on this show. But just walk us through that. Did your expectations live up to the reality? Yeah, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. And just to give a little context, you know, this was my first sort of real job out of college. I was 22 years old and, and very much uh, wide-eyed and optimistic. And I was also naive, I would have to say. You know, I grew up on a farm, as I mentioned the last time in South Dakota. Then I went to school in Florida, uh, graduated and, and went to Washington. It was really that, that, that trajectory. So it was, in, in some ways, it was very heartening. You know, it was, I was rubbing elbows with some of the people who've been ruling the country for the last two decades. I mean, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, all these people were senators at that time. And I was, while I didn't work directly with them, I was fairly low level. Explain to listeners who was in the White House. At this time, it was uh, George W. Bush. This was 2006, which I believe was early in his second term, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So it was, it was in some ways, it was sort of awe-inspiring. You know, I, my business carried me to the Capitol building on a regular basis. So when it was um, invaded in January, like I had personal experience with those spaces. And I, I definitely felt that hit home for those reasons. Um, but it was also disheartening. And, and the disheartening aspects of it were the fact that, you know, from the outside, and you look at, you know, when you view Congress through a television screen, you really just kind of see the facade. And this, this facade is sort of these austere, always sort of squarely dressed, you know, middle-aged or older men and women who have a certain regal air about them, typically. It has a sort of seriousness to it. But then when you actually start working on the Hill, you realize that 
just behind that facade, it's a bunch of 20 somethings that are kind of controlling the information flows in and out, who are helping and indeed making a lot of the decisions on policy and who really wield a lot of the power. It's, it's just a bunch of young people like me at that time. And that was a little bit of a surprise and a wake up call. And the other thing that was disheartening was I had come to Washington and I come from a family of public servants. Almost everyone in my family is either a teacher or a, a public servant. My brother's a geologist for the state. So it's definitely in my family history to, to the spirit of public service. And that's what drove me to work in, in Washington in the first place. And I kind of naively assumed that a similar spirit of public service would be motivating my colleagues. And I was disappointed to find, and I'm not really speaking about Tim Johnson's staff, but I'm speaking about congressional staffs writ large, that it was more a spirit of personal gain ultimately that motivated it. And the career trajectory for a congressional staffer very much indicates that. You would start out and then you would be, you know, sort of move up to the first rung or second rung on the sort of hierarchy. And you, what you get then is a portfolio of issues. So maybe you work on things related to international relations or finance or healthcare or military affairs, whatever the case is, that'll be sort of your portfolio support for the Congress member. But what, what I found and what I was explicitly told by so many people is that the real plan is to get that portfolio of issues, make all the contacts, learn who the power brokers are and, and where the levers of influence exist and how to, how to manipulate them. And then to transfer to the private sector and double or triple more likely your salary. And that's, you know, having you know, my time on the Hill almost, you know, 12, 15 years ago now, I can see that's exactly what many of my, you know, colleagues or, or tangential colleagues have done. I mean, that's, that's what's expected. So that was a disheartening thing to see that, you know, in many cases, yes, it's nice to be doing public service, but really... You know, the end goal is to get that lobbying job and bring home that, you know, high six-figure salary. Well, in your case, what was your end goal when you took that job on Capitol? Where did you see yourself? I wanted to learn about how the business of government was done. I mean, I, w- I approached it from sort of an experientialist point of view. I had intended and was planning to go to grad school and ultimately did. So that, that year that I worked on the Hill was, in a way, my gap year between my undergraduate and my graduate degree. So I wanted to gain the information that would actually allow me to have some applied knowledge because I studied political science and political theory. So this was my way of sort of hopefully bridging the gap between theory and practice. Because on the academic side, and I could speak about that if you like, you have a real disconnect from the day-to-day actual function of government. And you, there's, there's only, last time I looked up the numbers, I think there was only one or two political scientists in all of Congress, but there's many hundreds of, of lawyers. So I wanted to be able to not find myself in an ivory tower in the academic world, but at the same time, actually have the academic and theoretical chops to be able to understand like how, to, how a, a, academia analyzes policy. So I was hoping to combine those two strains in my experience. So you spoke about staffers that have been on the career trajectory and not having their political heart in the right place. What about lawmakers themselves? Are there good guys, bad guys, good gals and bad gals? I mean, I think that's an oversimplification, to be honest, John. I mean, I would, and again, as I said, I think last time we spoke, I'm reluctant usually to blame individuals. I think what happens is, and this is what a learning from my graduate education is that one of the centrally important aspects of human society is the institutional incentives that we create. And we've created an incentive system where money leads to elections. And in order to get money, you often have to compromise on your 
personal beliefs or your character or your, your, your sense of ethics. Mm. So I don't blame an individual congressperson for making those choices. I blame a system where money can buy influence. Okay. So, you know, if from my point of view, you know, getting on my high horse and judging, I could say, oh, yes, it's bad for you to, you know, take money and vote the way that someone says. But that doesn't solve anything. We have no. to actually look at the incentives we're creating. If we actually want to. We touched upon that in our last uh, show. There's the uh, dialing for dollars the congressmen have to make, do as soon as they get into office to pay for campaign ads. It's it's, right. it's, a, it's, an, it's an extraordinary burden on them. So it takes them away from the focus on the job. Yeah. And I think that's something most constituents would be shocked to hear that their you know, first and early, second or early term uh, Congress member spends the bulk of their time, as you suggested, dialing for dollars. And again, that's part of the growing disconnect between the ruling class and the people. And when I talk to people about this all the time, I, I hear almost, I mean, when I talk to working class people about their views of Washington, I almost always hear, we want term limits, we want term limits, we want term limits. Yeah. And I can understand that point of view because the idea is, well, they get kind of stuck in that so-called swamp of Washington. But what I would also encourage people to consider, though, is that I don't know that term limits would actually reduce the influence of money and corruption in Washington. In a way, I think it might increase it because yeah. every if you have a term limit of two or four or whatever it is, that's just more often that money is going to come and play a role and more seats that are going to be fought over that. And you need money to win those seats. So it might actually have the adverse effect. But the overall point is that there's a real sense of alienation, and increasingly so from the people and the city. And I that's part of the reason why I left is I started feeling myself change into a little bit more of a crass utilitarian sort of uh consumerist person. I didn't like what I was becoming. And that's a lot of the impetus why I quit my job and moved away. I mean, I see an upside and a downside to term limits. The downside is if you have a brilliant lawmaker who is a highly ethical person who, who knows the how the system works in DC and is a good visionary, if you lose him after a term or two, he's gone. Right. Yeah, and, and that's 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 a major downside. And plus, I think people sometimes underestimate how complex and, I mean, American governance is. I mean, we you, it takes a certain amount of expertise to actually pass intelligently, you know, construct constructed yep. laws. And already, you have a massive influence of outside lobbyists and outside firms that are actually writing the text of most of our laws. And that influence would only increase under a under a strict term limit. So there's pluses and minuses, but. I guess, the, again, as I said, it, it's a sign of the sort of general disdain that the American populace has for Congress. Yeah, no. And, and just quickly back on the dialing for dollars to give listeners an impression of this. I've been told that the congressman will literally be at the phone calling people up for money. There could be hours on the phone. Is that correct? I mean, yes. Everything that I've read and, and, and heard from my colleagues who work for these members, absolutely, that's true. And I, I mean... There's, several, there's three House and Senate office buildings that are adjacent to the Capitol building. And many of those rooms in there are they're, they're call centers. I mean, yeah. in a way, they're call centers. And they're working through, they're, they work through their donor lists and they, and they have to drum up those funds. And again, that's not, that's not greed necessarily that drives yeah. that. It's just necessity. I mean, yeah. it's not, 80% of the time, the last time I looked at the statistics, the person, the candidate who spends the most money wins the election. Well, you know, you don't you don't run to lose. So if you have to raise the money, then that's what you do. So you know, it's a system that's corrupted. I don't know. It's I would blame individuals for that. Washington overall is a sort of a sleazy, corrupt 
place, not necessarily the individual lawmakers. That was one of your takeaways. Did that inspire your book, Animal Town? Yes, and, and thank you for asking. That's absolutely it did. And, and what you see in my book, Animal Town, which again is available on Amazon or through the publisher, D'Angelo Publications, is that you have a prosperous capitalist society, much like our own, where people in a way have sort of lost and forgotten the lessons of their past about treating one another as individuals and as equals and not as members of groups, first and foremost. And there's an event that sort of raises the salience of the different species who live in Animal Town. And what you find is that one of the sort of main characters, the antagonists in the novel, he sees this, he's the wealthy sort of landowner. He's sort of standing in for this billionaire one fraction of a percent uh, portion of the population. And he sees this division between these two species as an opportunity to distract from his own uh, dealings with the powers that be. And what you have is he's conducting these shady deals to make sure that no one really noticed that he's the one that's causing all of them economic misery. And again, that's that's a nice parallel for what we what we see in America today. Well, your, your book's getting a sort of a cult following. I hope so. Yes, I, the sale the sales have been steady, and we've had some positive reviews. And I really think I would just challenge people to read it. And frankly, you know, if they want to, if someone reads it and doesn't like it, and contact me on at, at on my Twitter handle uh, at ad altman, and and I I'd probably refund you because if you've read <laughs> Animal Farm and you liked Orwell's work there, well, I'm not ripping off Orwell, but you can see that if Orwell were alive today, it would be my highest honor to believe that he would have written a book similar to, similar to this. So I would challenge those fans who've read Animal Farm to read my book and, and tweet at me if they, uh, if they didn't think they got their money's worth. Now, the animals in your book, who are the characters in DC that they depict? Great Can you question. name names Thanks. here for us? Well, so some of them are directly related to individual personalities, and I don't want to give away too much, but one of them is the recent president. Uh, two of them are recent presidents that are reflected. Recent presidents, exactly who? Yeah, well, oh, pr- President Obama makes an appearance or a character that sort of is modeled on him. President Trump, there's a character modeled on him. Um, there's another character that's sort of modeled on these, it's a little bit modeled on Elizabeth Hitt. Warren, a little bit Hillary Clinton, and a little bit predominantly on uh, Kamala Harris. And there are also other characters that sort of one character represents the religious right, one character represents the woke or alt-left. And so you can kind of see that each of these major factions in our society today are represented in characters in the book. And part of the fun, I think, is trying to figure out exactly who, who is who. I haven't given you the names, but you at least kind of have an idea where I'm going. Well, you wrote the book a while back, so Joe Biden's not represented, I presume. No, and (laughs) he was already running for president while I was writing it, but I perceived that Joe Biden, with his advanced age, carries less weight in the Democratic Party than he would have in the past. And he's not the future of the Democratic Party, he's he's the past. So I I thought it was prudent to look beyond him, and I do kind of make some uh, implied predictions as to where our politics will go um, is even even in the next election cycle. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting a Teenager. Learning the Lingo. Jelly. Jelly adjective. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. 
thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. My guest is A.D. Altman, the former Capitol Hill staffer and now an author and a teacher at a charter school in America. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Joe Biden is another study. He's having uh, difficulties uh, in his mental focus. He's now in the middle of wrangling over this bill. But he's he's a gaffe machine. You know, what this has been re- said repeatedly and some cognitive decline, it seems. And I personally don't like to make fun of it. If there is a, a mental health issue, you know, you got to feel sorry for the guy, really, genuinely. But it, it makes you worry about the leadership of America. Well, it does. And, it, you know, I wouldn't limit it to Joe Biden. I mean, the last election, the two major candidates were both the oldest presidents the United States will have ever elected. And Trump before that was the oldest president the United States had ever elected. I mean, most people are forced to retire or or do retire in their early 60s. And these both candidates are well, well beyond that. And then you go over to the Senate. I mean, it's 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 just a lot of the same. Really, in this country, we have a gerontocracy and, and not <laughs> a sort of fully functioning democracy with a D, in my opinion. And again, that's why you see things like students being locked out of their classrooms for 18 months at a, at a stretch. And I mean, anyone who really says they want to put students' interests first would, would not do something like that. And it's because young people don't vote at a very high rate and don't have very much money that the old people who do vote at high rates and do have money feel very comfortable sort of passing the buck down to the children. And I currently am, am, am my, in my day job working as a social studies teacher. And I see this, I mean, the people who suffered the most from COVID are the young people. And it's just a little bit ironic to see, you know, the very same factions that claim to care the most about the poor and downtrodden and who vote for that way in, in the teachers union. I mean, the teachers unions have been very you know, allied to the Democratic Party. But these teachers unions are the ones who are refusing to teach the most. I mean, that's come back and most students are in school now, but for 18 months and where I teach, many of the students were just deprived of education for 18 months. So and you're saying, A.D., that the classroom should have been opened up much earlier? The, the average age of death from COVID was 82 years. And yeah. that, that's beyond the median life expectancy in America. You know, and, and I'm not saying that those aren't tragedies when people die prematurely. It absolutely is. But the cases of children being in danger are just infinitesimally rare. Yep. I mean, in 100 years ago, the, the Spanish flu or what was then called the Spanish flu, I don't know if it's PC to say that anymore, but that was attacking primarily young people. And we got back to our, our, our way of doing things. And it, and it was doing so at a, a very high rate. The percentage of death was much higher. And, and yet we were, you know, we returned to normalcy, I believe. I mean, we have, if we go much longer here, we will have outlasted the Spanish flu in terms of its impacts on our society. So we've lost our sense of proportion. I think that's in a way because our societies become so comfortable, at least in the developed world, that we have to sort of almost create, create dramatic things for us to make our lives, make ourselves aware that we're living them. And, and the phrase I use in the book is that I say animals would rather feel bad than feel nothing. Well, the same is true of humans. And I think a lot of the times we are not driving satisfaction from our lives in a positive way. So just to make sure that we know we're alive, we sometimes feel negative because we'd rather feel that than, than nothing. You're in a unique position to comment about young people and even and the education system because now you're teaching at a charter school and it's predominantly a black community. 
So you have a take on it that some of us just don't have the um, opportunity to get. Yeah, and it's it's been really eye opening, and and I've I specifically sought out the opportunity to work not necessarily with you know African American or Black you know children, but with I wanted to work with impoverished demographic because those are the kids who need my services the most. Frankly, I mean the upper middle class they're going to be okay whether or not I go and teach them. There's no shortage of teachers that are looking to do that. But I, I purposely gave up my lucrative career because I wanted to try and start giving back a little bit. And so I chose this field. And it's been amazing to see because I was expecting to come into a, an environment where you know, critical race theory and allied concepts would be um, required. And I have seen very little of that at all. And what I've kind of tentatively come to the conclusion of is that you know, you've heard the phrase luxury beliefs applied to these this sort of new age, alt-left, woke ideology. And, and I really think there's a lot to that because the kids that I'm working with don't have time to worry about, you know, you know, equity or, or costumes that people dress up as or things like that. They're much more worried about like, am I going to be safe in my neighborhood tonight? Um, you know, is my, am I going to have a parent who cares about what I'm doing in school or is actively involved in my life? or more than one parent in that situation. So it's, I, I was pleasantly in a way surprised to see that we're much more practically focused on day-to-day learning how to act in an adult environment and fulfill obligations that society requires of us. So that's been heartening to see that in practice, this critical race theory ideology is difficult to make useful in the actual places where the proponents of it think it should be applied. At what level is the school? I'm teaching at seniors geography okay. right now. Uh, can you address any notions people may have that these students may be outliers in the black community, that they're the most motivated, but the mass of the black population perhaps really want critical race theory? Well, I don't want see, I don't even like, frankly, talking about a black community or mm. or I think that's, a, again, a. I, I would. I think we're these concepts of race. All Americans. Are, what exactly? Right, and humans. Well, that's the way. Yeah, a lot of people look at it, but you don't get that a lot in in many parts of the media today and among the elite, if you will. Yeah, indeed, and 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 I think again, as I alluded to, I think that's with purpose. I mean, <laughs> these the billionaire class and the corporations that have lined up behind these ideas and have thrown their funding behind it. I, I, I have. I'm suspicious that suddenly after hundreds and hundreds of years of being motivated only by profit that suddenly now, oh no, now we really care about these social causes. I think it's probably more likely that they view these social causes as lucrative and uh, as, as marketing techniques. So I'm, I'm suspicious of their, of their motivations. And, and I wish that the corporations would sort of stick to what they're best at, which is making a profit. Um, But yes, it's, it's definitely, I think it's I think it's a, a movement and a theory that comes from the top down and not the bottom up. That, that's interesting what you say, but how, what's motivating the corporations? Another way to look at it could be that they're coming under um, extreme pressure from activist groups fall right. in line because you saw examples of other uh, companies who didn't fall in line and but they stood firm, but the pressure was unrelenting. Yeah, I think the jury is still out on whether or not sort of adapt, adopting woke marketing is profitable. I've seen some initial studies that suggest that it is. I've seen some that suggest it's not. Uh, I don't think it's a a, a clear-cut case yet. 
But I do think it's a symptom of my generation, millennials, you know, transitioning out of their educations and, and really taking over a lot of the workforce, especially in those sort of traditional culture making industries like media uh, and entertainment and, and, and the arts. So I think it's coming from them. And then you, what you have are the, the older folks who've been running those organizations have liberal inclinations. So mm-hmm. they don't re- they feel like, oh, well, these guys must be on my side. I'll go along. And that's why all these institutions are tipping that way so quickly without much of a, without much of a fight, I think. Yeah, I feel some of the, the woke advertising is a bit phony overall, and the public actually sees that. But we'll yes. soon find out by sales and so on. Um, it, it just gets a little sick. You get a little sick to your stomach, though, when this is taken to you know, all these extremes. Joe Biden's approval ratings are plunging. Yes, I've seen that. I, I think they're as low or around the Trump level for this latter half of his term, which I think is coming as a surprise. Well, and I think part of that is going back to the messaging you're seeing coming from the Democratic Party. I read a great article in Politico, which is, and I'll just say this for, for your listeners, that you know a lot, of, a lot of Americans will get their news from their local newspapers, CNN, MSNBC, uh, Fox News. Maybe they, if they read a national, they might read the Times or... But, People on the Hill, they're usually reading Politico and and this other magazine called The Hill. And so this is kind of where I go for inside information to keep my fingers on the pulse of The Hill. And there's this great article in Politico from an analyst who was uh, one of the major um, leaders of the Obama campaign. So he's a Democratic strategist and pollster. And he was doing research into the typical Democratic campaigner and activist and staffer compared to the typical Democratic voter. And I bet you can guess which one is more liberal than the other, the staffers. So, and these staffers that are populating these offices and working these campaigns and pitching these marketing ideas and writing these commercials actually have views that are not just more leftist than the average Democratic voter, but different altogether. And specifically, the article cited a research they had done with a marketing and advertising and polling firm, Democratic-led the staff and employees of that firm, their preferences on uh, ads. And then they asked Democratic voters their preferences on ads that would be run for campaigns. And what they found was a, an inverse relationship. So the ads that the staffers most liked were the, were the ones that the average Democratic voters most disliked. So I think that's part of the reason is you've got messaging that's coming from Washington and other, you know, other cultural centers that your average Democratic voter it isn't actually hearing. And again, I'll go back to the actual election results. This was touted as an election that was sort of a referendum on, on their, and, and the Democrats sought to paint Trump as a racist every chance they got. But what you didn't hear many people talking about is that the actual election results, minorities and women actually more voted for Trump than, yeah. than again, than for Hillary. And it, so it was, and what actually won the election for Biden was like, moderate, largely, you know, white males voting, voting for Biden. So it was actually the opposite of, of what the narrative would tell you. And I think if they keep pushing this, you know, that's the real fight that's going on in the Democratic Party is like, you know, do we double down on the woke narrative or do we actually go back and meet our median voters? And I, it remains to be seen what will come of that. So these staffers are out of touch with the grassroots. That's quite interesting. If you put your finger on the pulse of the nation of the average American, they're moderate, would you say, by inclination? Because I read stories also of um, during political campaigning in, you know, swing states and states which are wrapped up for the different parties, Pennsylvania, 
I want to leave Vermont out of the equation. That's a quirky kind of a, a state. But basically, they were talking about bread and butter issues, jobs, um, schooling, uh, roads, um, healthcare. That was it. They, they don't want to get into these esoteric, complex, ideological battles. They're not interested. Yeah. I mean, I was just reading about the mayor's race in Atlanta, where the murder rate has skyrocketed. And the biggest issue there is crime. And the candidates who are, and it's basically a democratic city, the candidates there are, are sort of vying to be who has the best ideas how to deal with the crime surge. In New York City, the, art, the same thing happened for the mayoral election there. Who won? The, the person who said we're tough on crime and we want you know, law and order. Well, yeah. when, when others were saying those things, these very same people were tarring them as dog whistles for, for a, a racist notion. But I think they're just ignoring the plain fact that when the murder rate goes up, people get worried and scared and people yeah. want to live in safe environments. So yeah, that's, well, we saw people moving out of New York at the absolutely. height of the pandemic and the crime wave. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, New York lost congressional seats in the census. I think since uh, California lost population, I think for the first time in its history. Um, and a middle America is absorbing a lot of those uh, those those ex those ex city dwellers. But I actually kind of view that through a positive lens in that really we had too much financial and cultural capital concentrated in too few places, mm -hmm. really in the California and the sort of Boston to Washington corridor. And I view it as a good thing if we've sort of spread out the the you know, upper middle class sort of workforce more throughout the country, because that'll just bring people into contact with each other more. And that often leads to the breaking down of some of those bar barriers. The problem is we continue to see people self-selecting into uh, neighborhoods and towns and cities that already share their views. So it's not certain that we'll actually see political you know, mixing, but at the very least, we'll see some of those cultural and economic power bases spread out around the country, which I view as ultimately a good thing. Well, there's a lot of issues, multiple issues in America and across the globe. Some of them are kind of worrying. You see the rise of China with its global ambitions, and that's one thing, but ambitions that could threaten personal and economic freedoms for people in the West and its own people, you know, that's um, that's got to be occupying minds in Washington and should be. Yeah, and, and it should be. But again, our system is very much uh, incentivizes short-term thinking. And, you know, every two years we have an election cycle, which means that you're campaigning basically six months after you get elected in, in most roles. And that prevents us from being able to really think and draw long-term 30, 60, 90 year strategies. And I think that's in some ways a, a real disadvantage that we have. And increasingly so as, we, as the world becomes more complex, it requires more long-term and, and considered thinking. And our system is not ideal for that in, in a lot of ways. Uh, regarding China, I would just contrast them. So now I condemn you know, autocracy and I, I am a, a small D Democrat to the bone. Uh, but one advantage of the Chinese system is that they have the ability to think long term and they are doing so. And this is what I want to stress to Americans is that when China thinks about itself, they think back about 3000 years into the past and they project themselves several hundred years at least into the future. So what I see is, yes, absolutely. China is going to be the main geostrategic sort of uh, pole opposite the United States for the foreseeable future, certainly the century. That's what I always stress to my students who are, you know, 17 years old. I'm saying, you guys, I stress teaching them about China because they need to know 
what the world's going to look like as they get older. So that's definitely one aspect of it that I see as important. But there's another that I think is being neglected, and that is what is Africa and, and basically international migration. So I've, I was just looking at some of the numbers, and I think there's around 750 million, perhaps a bit more now. It's been a while since I looked it up. Uh, people living in sub-Saharan Africa, so uh, below the Sahara Desert, obviously. That's projected by the UN to reach 1.75 to 2.1 billion people by 2050. And that's really around the corner. Mm -hmm. So I think the other major sort of geostrategic macro level sort of uh, trend is that it'll, it's like, where does Africa go? Do, do we establish stable democracies where, where, where governments deliver on citizens' demands? Or do you continue to see, as even in Sudan, there's been a coup just in the last week, you know, citizens that are dissatisfied with their government and seek better opportunity elsewhere. Because that's the one area of the world where the birth rate has not decreased that much. Most of the rest of the world it has yeah, in its level. The demographic time bomb in Western Europe and even in America. Right. And I don't know and that probably Latin really, America sooner or later. Potentially, yes. So and I don't know that we I mean, right. So like the migrant flows we're dealing with now, which are already record setting in America and causing major problems in, in Europe, will probably be a trickle compared to what we might see in the coming decades, unless we can start to see better and more stable governments in Africa that can deliver to their citizens more effectively. And I don't think we're talking as, as much as we should be at a national level about that. Okay. If you were the president or you're in Congress and you had all these problems in front of you, today's problems, uh, I, what would you do? We have high energy costs, we have uh, rising inflation, we have chaos at the border, we have a supply chain threatening the availability of goods in our stores. Rates of crime have soared and increased. Just general discord and division and polarization in America. And many American parents are livid with the administration about its encouraging and promoting critical race theory, which we spoke about. And yeah. the exit from Afghanistan was a total and utter disaster. We want to improve our national pride. We want to fix some of these problems. If you were in office, how would you do it? Well, there's a couple of things that I would do from like an institutional practical point of view. And I think one of them, I, keep, I like to talk about institutions because they create the incentives that create the reality. And one of the, one of the negative incentives we have in, institutionally is our primary system, where it's usually closed and partisan, creates incentives for more extreme candidates to run. So one of the things I think would be an important policy would be to create open primaries across the country to the extent possible by law. And that would allow candidates towards the center where most Americans are. I think the last time I checked, the actual party affiliation is lower than it's been in, in many decades. I think only around 20 to 25% of people on the left and the right are actually identifying as Republicans and Democrats. So by getting rid of the primary system, you allow people to sort of vote for the median and you get more moderate compromise, uh, you know, moderate candidates willing to compromise. Institutionally, that's one major factor. Also, institutionally, the gerrymandered districts is a huge problem. And it, it just, like, it's, it's, it's legalized political corruption, frankly. It's on so, both sides. It's a, it, absolutely. It's clear about this on both sides. Yes. And yeah. again, these, this is what I'm saying across the board. Again, I'm, I'm an independent. I don't identify as Democrat or Republican. Uh, I, I think they're both corrupt, frankly. So, yes, gerrymandered districts is a problem. I don't see, I mean, it's really a mathematical question in most ways. So I, I would love to see like a technic, you know, technocratic commissions and really computer algorithms and then bipartisan sort of overseers. The, the, the partisan gerrymandering is, is a huge problem. So institutionally, those are two things. And then from, but a, at a broader level, 
it's we need a talos. We need an a, 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 an ethos that actually motivates our country. I think what we've what we've done is since the fall of the Cold War, we basically sold our sold that to marketing firms. And what I would love to see is a recommitment and a rededication to those things that have made have made America, the West, and the world great. And those are things like individual rights and responsibilities, uh, the rule of law, uh, clear little d democracy, but also the scientific enlightenment. I mean, this is the foundation of everything around us is based on scientific thinking and the results of the Renaissance and and the Enlightenment and its and its you know spread and, and use and application around the world. And I think United States and the West, if they want to lead in the future, they need to they need to lead in such a way that not by force, but by setting the best example that the world will desire to follow the, the Western uh, democratic capitalist worldview. And right now, we we are not setting an example that the world wants to follow. And I don't think we're quite, most people don't necessarily realize how touch and go it's going to be for the next century. And if we try and win by making the most things and producing the most money, in the long run, I'm going to place my bets on China because they have 1.3 billion people today. You know, it's just, if you combine the European Union, North and South America, Australia, and New Zealand, you still have less people than all in China. So I, I don't think we should be fighting that game. I think we should be setting the example in terms of the kind of society that to be a model for the world that they would want to follow. But we are not doing that now. We are systematically tearing down those things that made us great, I believe. Very quick response to this. You're, are you a free enterprise guy? Are you pro-family values? Well, family values is a loaded term. I mean, I'm pro-family in that the data are very, very clear that having two-parent households are essential, like not essential, but they're one of the most important things for the upbringing of a child. But when people say family values, they sometimes imply um, a religious worldview. And I, I wouldn't say I, have, I share that. Um, but in terms of free market, yes, I, the, I, the, it's, it's indisputable that capitalism has unleashed more prosperity than the world has ever seen by far. But we have capitalism for a purpose, ideally, and we have capitalism that's regulated to ensure that it actually fulfills its function. And again, the, again, capitalism, I'll stress, is not an ideology. It's just a system of exchange and private ownership and property. So I'm in, I have no problem with those things. I'm in favor of them. But I don't want the, the end or the goal of capitalism to be just more money. Uh, it needs to be capitalism serves something else beyond that. Listening to you a lot, last show and this show, and knowing what you write about, you would be um, very pro defending the rights of workers whenever their rights were trampled upon. Uh, it's yeah. side by side with a you know a dynamic free market economy. Absolutely, and and I think part of the issue is that we kind of we we have this view that workers and, and owners are sort of at odds. But the way to get around that is to bring both parties into the table. And I, I look to Germany here. They've done a really great job at, at bringing in workers and unions to actually help involve, involve them in the decision making. And a lot of them are required to sit on board. So they have a much less acrimonious labor and capital relationship there. Um, I, I think that's a model that we might want to look more into. And similarly, I would say employee ownership is a capitalist model that shows that that's, that's shown to be highly effective. And the reason why is because and again, back to incentives. If I, as a as a wage earner, can gain stock in my company, then I have an incentive for that company to do well that I don't have if I'm just getting my paycheck. So those are things I think we should be considering. But uh, I'm I'm definitely not in favor of you know government control of major means of production. Final question: You're a young man. You have ambitions. Deep thinker. You've written a book. 
Um, you're teaching in a charter school. You have great ideas. Your family have been in public service. Do you see yourself going back into public service? Could you see yourself taking a run for Congress one day? You know, I don't think so. And I've always, I've always, I mean, it's a tough question. I appreciate you asking it, but I've, I've long said that, no, I, I have no desire to run for public office. And I, and I really don't. Uh, and I do believe that people who are desirous of power are the last people who should have it. <laughs> so I, that's not my ambition. My ambition is to hopefully insert some ideas that others can build on and run with. But as our politics are constructed today, I, I have no desire. I am not a, I'm not a masochist. I do not want to subject myself to that. But that said, you know, if I felt called upon by, by a constituency, if I was asked or, or strongly encouraged, then I would consider it. But it's not something I'm personally striving for. On that note, A.D. Altman, thank you for being on my show. Thank you, John. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.